From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk. Hello, my name's Jeremy Gordon and welcome to The Wealth Show. I'm joined on the podcast today by Aberdeen's Wesley McCoy, the CityWire A-rated manager of the firm's £375 million UK value fund. Wes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. Hi. Hi. Um, well, firstly, th- there's been some excitement about the uh, FTSE 100 going through uh, 8,000 points for the first time. But um, were you surprised that took as long as it did? Yeah, I feel like that was meant to happen about 10 years ago, wasn't it? Um, yeah, so it it has taken us a little while. And I think the UK's just always felt a little bit sort of inferior to the US markets, hasn't it? Which have sort of raced away ahead of us. But um, it's a bit tortoise in the hair. And of course, You've got to remember as well, everyone fixates on that FTSE 100 level. But if you include dividends and have a total return, we went through a new high quite some time ago. But, you know, that index level does matter, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's really significant. Yeah. And, and, well, one of the reasons for the UK's underperformance during that decade has been that, well, it's quite a value universe. Yeah. There are quite a lot of, of, of value stocks, big value stocks in the index. I mean, do you think that's now gone from being a headwind to a tailwind? Oh, for sure, Jeremy. I mean, I've sort of been hiding under a rock for about the last 10 years as a fund manager. So it, it's definitely like that. You know, you, you, you know I'm, I'm 44 years old, so I would have learned investing and become a sort of better investor in the early 2000s when value was nothing to sort of hide, was it? Um, and the UK market was known as this place that gave you great value opportunities and everyone actually wanted to buy those opportunities. And the UK still is a place that gives you great value opportunities for, but for about a decade there, no one was really interested. So yes, it, it is, it, it's the makeup of our index and you get all these moments that are so telling, don't you? When like politicians say, I don't think our stock market's set up for like the modern world. And those are like the economist headline, which says bear market, aren't they? That's like, like that's like the end of the problem not them highlighting a new problem so it was it was right yeah. i see that's a kind of lead indicator of change well maybe we can step back a bit and, and talk about you know so how did you end up as a value fund manager in the first place yeah i i alluded to it there i i i would put it i mean maybe i'm not like everyone else but a, a lot of the fund managers i meet that are you know mid 40s my age they roughly became kind of good investors in their 20s when they started out, you know, and, and then you often get heavily influenced by what is prevailing at the time. So when I was learning to invest from my like senior people in our firm, a value market was rampant. So you just learn how to invest in that market. Mm -hmm. And then you become a value investor. And I, I think if you've got someone on this show, who's 35 or 30, they've learned in a growth market, and I'd probably say they're more likely to be growth investors. So I was a UK investor at a time when value sort of drove the market, uh, the early 2000s. And, and then that becomes your prevailing style of investing. And eventually, as you sort of get a bit older, get some grayer hair, you sort of realize you've sort of done that 10,000 hours thing where you become a kind of investor and you just know roughly how to do that. 
and you know how to give that your best and that's what you sort of you know you start it eventually you realize you're not going to become a new kind of investor it's a bit of a sort of maturity thing i think yeah Okay. Well, you, you told me that, uh, you know, as, as a value manager, you've had to hide under a rock for 10 years. I mean, you know, plenty of kind of va- value inclined fund managers, you know, have spent, you know, kind of recent years telling me, uh, well, you know, va- values outperformance, which is backed up by a lot, lot of historical data, you know, it will come through, but, but it often is comes in kind of these short, sharp spurts, you know, these strong reversals. And, you know, I want to ask, you know, haven't we kind of already had that? <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like all these things where you're meant to be excited before something happens, not after it's just happened in investing. But um, the thing I'd say to that is, you know, I think back to that time when it was, you know, you, you sort of value with a small V maybe. And you think about like, I like to think it's something I sort of nicked from Howard Marks at Oak Tree. He talks about this pendulum, you know, and investing is like a pendulum swinging, you know, to either side, you know, left and right. And I think although the pendulum was at its most extreme a couple of years back, and that was the point of this massive snapback, there is no way I think that we're back to either the middle or over to the other side. And, you know, I I look at that and I think if you look in all companies, you know, number of value funds, not that many, or, you know, it it still feels quite a minority sport. It still feels like people have this, this essence to how they think about markets is this is a time for value, but that happens quickly and it goes through your fingers fast and then normal service resumes and normal service resuming is just people's sense of what they've got very used to. And at the moment, that's still people thinking we might go back to this like growth-driven market or quality-driven market. And I would say, well, the conditions for that, as we now know with the benefit of you know a decade of hindsight, where this moment where investing is, I think, two things. Like, what is it and what do you pay for it? You know, at its most simple, the way I like to think about it. And I think what it was became the only thing you worried about and what you paid for it became irrelevant. And we now connect that to discount rates being zero, bond yields being zero. So who cares what you pay for it? You know, that's that sort of free money, cheap money type mentality. And I think if someone said it's short, sharp and it's going away, they must be saying caring about what you pay for something as much as what it is in and of itself, you must be saying that goes away. And I don't know about that one. I think that one's that one's here to stay for a while, that mindset. Okay. Well, as we look at the portfolio today, you know, just how cheap are we talking here? You know, what 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 are some of the kind of deepest value situations that in your fund? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because the thing that I try and get away from is this idea that cheapness in itself is value. You know, that's a you know, cheapness is a condition of value, but mm. it isn't the be all and end all. You know, something is is something undervalued isn't the same as is it cheaper expensive. But that being said, right, it's not all about just having the lowest PE ratio. No, you know, and that's this that's that's this extreme argument where people make themselves these sort of caricatures where you've got to like throw out the PE of one or the PE of two type businesses. You know, markets are a little bit smarter than that. You know, markets aren't sort of populated by dummies who let you know incredible bargains just exist all around them and they ignore them. But that being said. The thing that I like about my fund at the moment is lots of multiples at this point where we're worrying about the multiple, you know, the price to earning, DV, whatever multiple you want. And we're worrying about those fading because we're now repricing discount rates. We're worrying about our cost of capital. I'm still dealing with lots of headline level single digit PE companies, which is like saying 
you know, a, a 10% discount rate, if you like, as an oversimplification, once you go into a, a single digit PE. And I think, well, are, are interest rates going over 10? You know, probably not. But are they going back to, you know, zero, one or two? Probably not either. And the other thing I like about my fund is I don't, I don't manage it this way. I'm not a dividend fund. I'm not an income fund. But I love looking into my fund and seeing, but has it sort of become an income fund by dilt, by sort of dint of high yield? And the, the yield on the fund is now higher than the market. And that's without any desire to do that by design. But that for me is like a nice indicator of, of value, undervaluation, you know, lowly valued stocks, high dividends. You know, I like that. I like that as a sort of at the portfolio level. Um, and if you, if you talk about individual stocks, I, you know, the, the, the other yeah. nice thing about now and about the UK is, you know, think about lots of opportunities exist in markets, but often there's a catch, isn't there? So um, mm -hmm. often the catch is illiquidity. So people say, I find lots of cheap things, but I can't, you know, a scale fund like mine or even a bigger fund can't access those. They're too small. They're for the punter. They're for the end punter. You can buy them in tens of thousands of pounds, not for me, a 1% position is 4 million pounds, you know, so you know, to, to build a scale position, you've got to be going up from there. But the other lovely thing about the UK, as we talked about earlier in the FTSE, is some of the deepest value situations are the biggest companies, you know, by the nature of our index. So, you know, one that's been hiding in plain sight for me in the market is Vodafone, you know, that little tiddler company that no one ever thinks about, you know, that's a, a mega right. cap company that's, and here's where the cautionary tales start. I've told you already, I'm 44. People would say, You've never made money on that in your investment career if you've bought and hold that share, which is roughly true if you look back at the chart. You know, it was a great idea in 1990,000, yeah. and they've been hanging on in there ever since. It's not been a good idea for a very long time. And what I like about that is that that really dulls the audience. So people just, you look at it and people say, oh, value trap. Oh, I tried that last year. Oh, I tried that five years ago. Oh, I tried that trade 10 years ago. And you sort of say, well, Mm -hmm. Good for you, but why shouldn't you look at it now? And often you're looking for that apathy point. So the, the kind of cheapest, cheapest thing I own is probably Vodafone. And it's not some sort of micro cap that no one's ever heard of. It's a, you know, when I started building my position, the dividend yield was over nine. Um, so again, you know, we're having this debate about aren't bonds good enough now because they yield four or five. Well, nine's a bigger number than four or five, isn't it? So let's just sort of can that one straight away. and. And it's a super liquid company. And if I get it wrong, I can change my mind. You know, so these are all the things that I, so I think the UK is giving me liquid opportunities in undervalued companies. And liquidity means if you're wrong, you change your mind. And when you're dealing with value, as you are with, to be honest, all investing, you're going to be wrong sometimes. And if you're wrong, the thing you most want is liquidity because you want to change your mind. OK, well, on, on Vodafone, there was some news that um, Liberty Global, which is a, a telecoms conglomerate, which also is the joint owner of Virgin Media and O2 in the UK, uh, announced it. It's now built a nearly 5% stake in mm. Vodafone. I mean, firstly, you know, what did you think on that? And, and why are you right on Vodafone this time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let's hope I am. Um, I think that's super interesting because you have, you know, how would I say this to not be too disparaging to Vodafone? I think... You know, think about an audience, you know, the, the UK stock market is their audience and they don't, their audience isn't pleased with them. Their audience is apathetic and their audience is trying to sort of leave the show, aren't they? 
They want to leave the show or they want their money back. Yeah. And as with all shares, eventually someone's going to own them. So they found a different audience. And it's an audience of people who understand the deep value in Aiton Telecoms, which is Liberty. And they've got a few other private stakeholders who've built sort of billion dollar companies in telecoms. And it's it's so interesting, isn't it? The the institutional audience doesn't care, but the entrepreneurial telecom billionaire audience does care. And I'm like one of these people who'd say, well, I'd quite like to know why they want to come to this show before I leave. You know what I mean? Before they take my seat, I'd quite like to know why they want to stay right. the, the 50th act or the 60th act. And I'm I'm telling you now, they're not here to lose money. So you know, they're not, um, <laughs> they're not philanthropists when it comes to buying shares in Vodafone. They're doing it because they think the company yeah. has a deep incumbency, is deeply undervalued, to which an institutional investor would say, yeah, but it's poorly run or it's not a great business because it doesn't have great returns. And you think that's when I come back to my point. What is it and what do you pay for it? It's not, it's not as great a business as it was 20 years ago. They've let that opportunity in telecoms and data They've left that to software and technology companies, haven't they? Like Vodafone probably mm-hmm. had a shot at being, I, I goodness knows, Vodafone probably had shots at being Google or Apple or something 25 years ago, you know, but they're not. But so be it. It yields nine and they, they're changing. So their investor base is changing. The intensity of their investors is changing. Their chief exec is changing. I mean, it's, it's sort of hiding in plain sight, isn't it? It's a changing situation that's deeply undervalued. It's very liquid. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Well, let, let's turn to the uh, some more giants in the banking sector. I mean, rising interest rates have, have done much for banks' uh, net interest margins. But so, why why do you think your favoured plays, Barclays and Standard Chartered, are, are still marooned on such low valuations? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's it's um, and you, you know, that's the good thing and the bad thing, isn't it? The the good news is they're on low valuation, so they're undervalued. The bad news is they're still on low valuation, so they're undervalued, isn't it? Like eventually, even a value guy, you don't want to own undervalued situations forever, do you? Because then you've never actually gathered the value. So you want these companies to re-rate and you want to have that moment where you say a sort of happy goodbye to them. Um, And, you know, you've taken two examples there, Standards and Barclays, which similar drivers, but slightly different um, trajectories in the last six months to a year. So standards is kind of, kind of flying with bid interest and, you know, a bit less apathy. Barclays just had a sort of soggy earnings update back to the usual. Again, I'm like with Vodafone, people are like, yep, 20 years, I've been trying to make money, blah, blah, blah. They never, it never works, et cetera, et cetera. But you're right. Deeply undervalued. Um, Corporate interest in one of them, probably, you know, probably the same, the same framework that's making corporate people interested in standards. I'm not sure why that wouldn't apply to Barclays as well. It's got equally strong franchises. And importantly, that regime change, I guess, would be the phrase people are using. The condition that means it's very difficult for these companies to make money, which is that zero interest rate condition has changed. Now, it can, of course, change back, but it would now be quite a shift, wouldn't it, for it to change back? Like that feels like a change that's got some level of permanence to it. This isn't one of those false start changes like we had in 13, 14, or we had in 17, 18. This one's lasted longer and has more permanence to it. So these two companies have conditions that they can actually kind of do better in. And then good conditions allow you to show, have you actually improved your businesses or not? And I think 
none of the banks have really had the the prevailing winds to show if they've actually made any underlying improvements to their company or not, because they've had such a force against them in the macro. And I think now we're getting the chance to let these companies breathe and see, have they actually got better? Do they warrant multiples? You know, they're, they're on like multiples as low versus the market as they've ever been, including at points of crisis. Yeah. Um, so patience, okay. patience for those, for, for Barclays already being rewarded for standards and, you make the good point of why that one. And I think, you know, that if it if it gets closer to what I think is a fairer value, it won't be as large a position for me. You know, and that would be I don't I say that with a great, you know, with a with a happiness. I'll happily say goodbye to it at fair value. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well let's come on to another uh, a bit a big um sector question. You know, what about commodities? I mean, so you you've got a 10% or so position in materials stocks like Glencore, 5% in oil and gas. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a UK value obviously that's not nothing, but for a UK value manager we might even expect that yeah. to be a bit higher, you know. Yeah. Are you could discuss that a bit. The you know, you don't seem overwhelmingly bullish on commodities. Yeah, you make a good point there, Jeremy. And- how would I classify 2022? A lot of people classify that as a wonderful year for value manager. I'd change the, the narrative and say 2022 was a wonderful year for an oil and gas investor, wasn't it? Let's, let's, let's say it how it is. And then right. what people do is they, they substitute value oil and gas. And I'm like, oil and gas is a value sector, but it isn't the only one. Barclays didn't outperform in 2022, and it's a perfectly good value investment. So 2022 was that year of oil and gas, and that was that year of like commodities sort of doing that classic V, which they do often where people write it off and they say, you know, listen to what I've said already about Vodafone and um, Barclays. That's how people talked about BP. I mean, I was buying shares in BP in March 20, three years on, we're now COVID times. Oil was a negative price. BP shares were £2.50. BP shares are now... 560, 570, and everyone really likes them. And I think that's the point. So um, are they lowly valued versus history? Yes. Is that the only condition of something being interesting to me? No. Are they lowly valued versus history? And is there a deep skepticism about them? As you've said, a lot of people have more in oil and gas than I do. So I think it starts to slightly soften on that condition of like, you know, another word that I get tagged with is contrarian. How contrarian? is a large oil and gas and resources bet now. I don't know. I, I right. think you can find quite a few of those, can't you? And in 22, I had more of those. I had another big mining position. But the other thing that I'd like to bring out today is, you know, I listened to some of your past talks with people and it's this great virtue about buying whole investment, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not here to say other people don't invest well, but I'm here to really sort of champion how I invest. And buying holds fine, but like, Equities are a liquid asset class where you have the opportunity to change your mind. Why take that and turn it into an illiquid asset class where you never change your mind? So one of my largest holdings last year was Tangela, a Coldplay. Um, it really yes. benefited from oil and gas, energy, all this stuff, you know, energy prices, gas prices. It, it made its way from, you know, one of my smaller holdings because it's quite risky to my largest holding at that point. I didn't sort of sit on it and say, well, that's done really well. I'll just buy and hold it now for the next 20 years. I thought it's done more than I ever asked it to do. So I sort of waved goodbye to it. And I think there's there's just not enough people, I don't think, in this current time championing 
changing your mind. And I think if you're very orientated to the valuation of something, you must want to change your mind sometimes for good reasons or bad. Yeah. I mean, can I just ask on, on Fungella, yeah. and, it, and it might equally apply to Glencore, um, which, uh, you know, a huge amount of its profits recently have been driven by coal. I mean, can, can you defend owning a coal stock in, in this day and age? Oh, well, it's funny, isn't it? Because people are like, okay, no one's defending an oil stock anymore, but everyone's defending a coal stock. And I think what it is, is, mm. uh, you know, and I know you're into one of these sort of like, I feel like you'd have a politician who say who would say next question or no comment, isn't it? Because it's a difficult area. But here, I'll give you my version of it, and you can like it or not like it, or your listeners can like it or not like it. But what what we okay. try to do with ESG is talk about it as risks, right? So, um, an environmental risk or a risk to the planet, like production of coal, is we would say, okay, that's a risk. We need to think about it as portfolio managers with my wider what is the wider um, emission of my fund, for example? So as you pointed out, my fund is actually not that heavy in oil and gas. So how much carbon does my fund produce? Right. I think about that in the round with how much BP do I own? How much Shell do I own? You know, none. So I think about the wider sphere of my fund and I think about the carbon intensity of my fund. And I do look at that and I consider that. And I also think a risk whether it's an ESG risk or a company risk, or is it a bad company risk or a fundamental risk? The, the joy of a risk is you're meant to price it, right? So when we built up those coal investments, they were priced as companies that had no right to exist and would be disintermediated from the world energy mix. And we would say, like any other risk, are you being handsomely rewarded to taking the risk and you own the risk? So the risk we owned was we were wrong Coal has no place in the energy mix, and you would lose all your money owning coal assets. And, and what actually happened was coal was put back into the energy mix, partly through the conflict. Coal is now something where nearly every developed world economy is adding to coal assets as part of energy supply, energy security. And you know that risk hasn't played out, um, but it, it's, a, it's an ever-present risk, isn't it? The, 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 the risk of coal in our energy mix and in our planet is not going away. But your question must be, will I be adequately rewarded for taking that risk on? And my assessment now, Glencore was a larger position for me. Again, another example where it became my biggest position and now it isn't. And Tangela became my biggest position and now I don't own any is. Now I think it's, it's more marginal whether you're adequately rewarded for that. How's that? Okay. Okay. No, fair, fair enough. Well, thanks enough. Uh, I think, um, I suppose the last question on the portfolio really, and where, where, where else you're finding value. Um, in your fourth quarter update, you, you mentioned how cyclicals like Dunelm, IWG, Just Group and, and Ashted had performed strongly, um, as refresh, as uh, recessionary fears eased at the end of last year. That seems to have continued coming into this year. I suppose, wh when do you think it's time to start taking profits and, and shift back towards defensives or, or even out-of-favour growth stocks? Uh, that's like, you're, you're kind of reading my mind. That's such a good question because, you know, and I listen to myself and I hear back what I've been saying. You're not, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be a buy-and-hold investor, am I? So I must, I must sort of say on those examples, You've always got to find the next exactly, idea. Exactly right. And that's the, 
the great thing is you say you're going to do that. The challenge is you've got to go ahead and do that, haven't you? And you've given me four examples there, one of which I no longer own, so it's already gone. Um, that's Ash Ted. Dunelm, one of which I've sold down in. And Just Group and IWG, I think okay. they're still... I think they're still just sort of off to the other side of the reservation on fair value. So I don't worry about those two, but I'm doing exactly what you've said. And I think you've given me two opportunities there. You're right. The, 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 the recessionary fear, you could just feel it, wasn't it? It was palpable. That sort of September, October time, we had the world's worst government. We were going to be Venezuela, all that stuff, you know, and the world's crashing down. China's not reopening. And it was just, you, you could feel that, you know, you can cut it with a knife, that risk and fear in a market. And once you feel that, you have to wake up and just try and push against it. And it doesn't always work, but it's, it's usually kind of better odds. And now you're in a period where people are like, oh, phew. You know, the classic statement is, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought, was it? Okay, we'll come back out. And sort of people creep back out into more cyclical sectors. And then you find yourself sort of sharing that, you know, back to that, the audience. Then you're sort of the theater is getting busier, isn't it? You're sort of sharing the show. And you think, wow, it's getting quite busy in here. I'd probably better see what's on next door. And as you said, it's kind of defensive and out of favor growth. And <laughs> I haven't mastered that, but those are two areas that I'm looking very deeply. And the joy of how I do things is those are things that I might have owned before. I don't have to learn a whole new framework for those. I just pick up those files, meet those companies, think about them again, have an open mind. And I think I won't sort of presuppose any conclusions but um you're right on both and i'll i'll leave it there yeah i'm doing exactly as you say you you're you're describing exactly where the intensity of the portfolio is shifting and where the thinking's going but it's it's work in progress okay well thanks wes well we look forward to finding out in the future uh you know how that work of progress progresses um well, yeah, I think maybe that's a good note to end it. So just to say from me, well, thanks. Thanks very much for, again, for coming on today. Oh, I appreciate it. And these are uh, they're really clever questions. They're questions that are like provoking me now. And I'm sort of going to go away and think about what I've said and think, crikey, like I'd better, I'd better do those things, hadn't I? You know, so thank you for that really good, challenging question. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thanks, Wes. And thanks, everyone else uh, for listening. Uh, please look out for more of our podcasts soon. From jet engines to space rockets, telephones to computers, the world has seen spectacular change in the last hundred years, and the pace of progress is getting faster and faster. From electric cars to the metaverse, drone deliveries to climate solutions and genetic sequencing, we're investing in the companies that are not just changing the world today, but are also shaping the future. The Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Invest in progress. Capital at risk.